Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. My colleague John Wolfe famously wrote, you want to support a Unitarian Universalist church because it is searching for the holy rather than dwelling upon the depraved. Because it calls no one a sinner, yet knows how deep is the struggle and how great is the hunger for what is good. I've quoted him many times, but it occurred to me this week that that may be the only time I've ever said the word sin from this pulpit. So I'm going to tip the balance today and say sin a lot because we relinquish the word to fundamentalists, but we need to reclaim it. We need it. For those of you new to this faith, I want to be sure you know that while we celebrate the freedom to work out our own beliefs, Unitarian Universalism does not subscribe to the doctrine of original sin. Original sin, the Christian idea that human beings enslaved by Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden were freed by Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, but only by subscribing to this doctrine, repenting of our sins, and the grace of God will we avoid a fiery hell and be admitted to a heavenly after afterlife. Unitarian Universalists believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every being. Every one of us, by our human nature, lives with the propensity to both depravity and good. Because we are endowed with free will, it's a choice. And we have a responsibility not only for our own behavior, but for the creation of a world of justice and peace. Here on earth, divine living is as much as we can know of heaven. An old Puritan prayer begins, Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I, a sinner, am vile, wretched, and miserable. To this day, the word sin is used to fetishize suffering and terrify people about pleasure, especially embodied pleasure. And the label sinner is abused by the self-righteous, as satirist H.L. Mencken says, who seem alarmed by the possibility that someone somewhere might be enjoying themselves. So why am I calling for the reclamation of the word sin? Because we need a word for actions that we name as immoral, violent, evil actions that just describe a transgression of our humanity. We need a word for inequality and oppression, structures of society that are not just bad or wrong or missing the mark, Begin the list with sexism, racism, and keep going. These are sins. 
Here is New York Times columnist David Brooks writing about sin. No matter how hard we try to reduce everything to deterministic brain chemistry, no matter how hard we try to reduce behavior to herd instinct, no matter how hard we strive to replace sin with non-moral words like mistake or weakness, the most essential parts of life are matters of individual responsibility and moral choice, whether to be brave or cowardly, honest or deceitful, compassionate or callous, faithful or disloyal. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like error or insensitivity, or tries to banish words like virtue, character, evil, and vice, that doesn't make life any less moral. It just means we've used shallow language to obscure the inescapable moral core of life. It just means that we think and talk about these choices less clearly and thus become increasingly unwilling to engage the moral stakes of everyday life. We cannot engage what we cannot name. What others have called sin, especially pleasure and joy, we call good. And what others have refused to name, especially destructive secrets, the abuse of power, violence against the defenseless, we call sin. Reclaiming the word sin is a call to moral courage and deep reflection. Okay, a quiz. Can you name the seven deadly sins? Bring it on. Greed? Lust? Avarice. No, that's greed, but that's good. Greed and lust. What else am I getting? Anger, wrath, right, wrath, okay. Sloth, yes. Gluttony, yes. Pride, yes. I think we got them all. That was kind of amazing. I'm very impressed. You can give yourselves a hand. That was awesome. Um, let me run it again so you make sure you've got it. Ready? It's lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Someone could come up with an acronym and we can go around and say it to each other. <laughs> Handed down to us from the biblical King Solomon and codified by a fourth century monk, they have fallen somewhat out of vogue, but I'm inclined to resurrect them with nuanced meanings. Get ready for it. <laughs> Lust, uncontrolled desire for food, money, sex, alcohol, drugs, power, uncontrolled desire. Gluttony, overindulgence and overconsumption of anything to the point of waste. Greed, the excessive or rapacious desire to acquire or possess more than we need. Sloth, both physical and spiritual laziness and the failure to do things that we should do, especially in light of the way evil flourishes when good people fail to act. Wrath, both destructiveness and self-destructiveness. Envy, what Father Thomas Aquinas defined as sorrow for another's good. And pride, 
believing that one is essentially better than others. We can work on this, but I think we're on to something. So in practice, this is what sin looks like. Selfishness, arrogance, exploitative ambition, wanton materialism, wanting to do one thing but doing another, wanting what we should not want, hardening our hearts, favoring the short term over the long term, being unkind in thought or deed, rationalizing, deceiving others and ourselves, and being a bystander. The beloved spiritual community can offer a corrective to sin. The solutions to sin are communal as much as they are individual, and they have everything to do with the spiritual practice of paying attention, engaging mightily with hard choices, and opening our hearts. Many, many years ago, my sixth grade Unitarian Universalist Sunday School class was told the story of a man whose wife was very sick and would die if she didn't get a certain medicine that was available but very expensive. One night, having exhausted every means to obtain this medicine and having concluded that he would rather go to jail than for his wife to die, he robbed a pharmacy. This class of 11-year-olds was directed to discuss what we believed should happen to this man. Our teacher left the room. She would return, she said, for our verdict. After passionate discussion, there was one thing on which we could agree. The sin, we said, was not the man's. The sin was a treatment available only to the rich. And if that man had been a member of our congregation, we said, we would have found a way to help him pay for that medicine. So here's today's final pitch for reclaiming sin, just this. When we face and name sin, we also take on the possibility of interrupting the trajectory of sin and amplifying our faith that no one anywhere is banished from grace and possibility. I like to collect stories about a change of heart. There's the one about Jason Ledger, the rabidly anti-Muslim guy wearing an obscenity-laced t-shirt protesting outside of a mosque in Phoenix. Some very brave congregants invite him to come in and join the prayer service. Afterwards, he tells the press, this is a quote, out of respect for the Islamic people, knowing what I know now, because I have talked to them and spoke to them, no, I would not do that again, just because I don't want to offend or hurt those people. Interrupting the trajectory of sin. There's the one about 22-year-old Itali Proano who stole a van in Salt Lake City, hell-bent on getting her next fix, when she looked into the rearview mirror and saw a baby strapped into a car seat. She turned the van around, drove it back, and waited to turn in herself into the police and to get help for her addictions. Interrupting the trajectory of sin. 
There's the one about the infamous Fred Phelps, patriarch of Topeka's Westboro Baptist Church, who allegedly experienced a conversion when his grief about his wife's illness compelled him to realize that we are all made the same. Zacharias Phelps says that his grandfather renounced his hatred and shortly before his death was excommunicated from the church he founded, interrupting the trajectory of sin. And finally, there's the one about Johnny Lee Clary, who joined Oklahoma's Ku Klux Klan at the age of 14, and by the time he was 30, was named Imperial Wizard. An outspoken advocate of white supremacy and racist violence, he terrorized Reverend Wade Watts, a black civil rights activist, ultimately setting fire to his church. In return, Reverend Watts prayed for Clary and expressed kindness, love, and forgiveness toward him. As they were leaving a radio station after a debate, Reverend Watts introduced Clary to his wife and the niece they were raising and asked Clary how he could hate the little girl. Johnny Lee Clary realized he couldn't. He recanted his association with the KKK and joined Reverend Wade Watts in his work for racial equality, interrupting the trajectory of sin. Beloved spiritual companions, let us reclaim the word and call actions that we name as immoral sin, actions that are a transgression of our humanity, sin, actions that are evil, sin. Let us imagine together the healing of sin as work to which we are called both individually and as a beloved spiritual community. No one anywhere is banished from grace and possibility. May we engage the moral stakes of everyday life, interrupt the trajectory of sin, change our hearts, and so change the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.